This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen the impact that various new businesses have had in the last several years. Companies like Tesla, Uber, Airbnb, and others have innovated their sectors, but have also disrupted as well. But the question being asked more and more is what level of regulation should come along with that innovation? A recent Penn Wharton Public Policy Initiative presentation looked at this area. Sarah Light, who's an assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton School, was involved in this presentation, and she joins us right now. Good seeing you again. Nice. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, obviously, this is, I, I think, a very important area right now, in part because what we've seen surrounding Facebook and Twitter and Tesla right now. What is the state uh, of regulation right now with all of these entities? Because it feels like it, where we may be headed, we're just in the in the opening phases of what could be a very long process. Um, that is a that is a great point and a really good question. Each of these. Um, business and technological innovations have uh, has been prompting a lot of thought in the regulatory space about whether um, something like the internet can be regulated the same way as telephones, yeah. whether Uber and Lyft should be regulated the same as taxis, whether Airbnb should be subject to the same regulations as hotels. And so this raises a whole host of questions, not just for the entrepreneurs who are building these new forms of business based on the new technologies, but also for regulators in terms of how should they respond and in terms of the question of which regulator should get to respond. Should the regulation be at the local level, at the national level? So there's a whole host of questions that all of this innovation is raising. And and this becomes, as you said, very important. And this whole series uh, of seminars that are being done with people in Washington, D.C., people that are connected to the decision makers, they become very important because these are all questions that need to be asked for the future. This is not retrospective. This is looking forward for the next 40 or 50 years. And in this case, with yours, the internet and everything that is evolving around the internet feels like that is about 10 to 15 years ahead of where the regulators are right now. Often this is a really significant issue. Your The sort of time sequence is a really key point here. So um, when we think about existing laws and rules, existing regulations, often they're designed with a kind of specific technology in mind or a specific vision of the economy in mind. And then new business arises, be it in the sharing economy, be it the internet, be it uh, autonomous vehicles, that challenges the existing regulatory schema in a way that creates um, what my co-authors and I on this paper, uh, regulating business innovation as policy disruption, we call a policy disruption. So there's a technical term in management literature coined by Clayton Christensen um, about disruptive innovation. And that refers to uh, an innovative business that um, is somehow undercutting kind of a major established firm by yeah. drawing away customers. The term gets thrown around a lot. At the beginning, whenever I give this talk, at the beginning of the talk, I ask everyone in my audience, how many of you have heard the term disruptive innovation? And every single hand goes up. But most people don't realize that it has a kind of technical meaning in the business and management literature. Yeah. The challenge, of course, for someone like me um, who works on law and regulation is, well, what's the regulatory response? And is there 
a relationship between disruptive business innovation and policy disruption. So that's what we explore, my co-authors and I have explored in this paper. And we kind of come up with our own schema of different types of policy disruption. And what we're trying to do in the project is make clear that this isn't just about the sharing economy. It's not the fir- the sharing economy has created a lot of policy disruption, yeah. but it's not the first time that a new form of business or technological innovation has created a policy disruption. So we try to kind of abstract it and to say this is we need to be historically minded about this as well. Right. Um, you know, this the the same issues arose when the internet was uh, developing raising questions for regulators as to whether this should be regulated more like a telephone or like something else, right? right. Do the existing telephone rules or utility rules apply? The the issues kind of keep coming up again and again. And so I think it's important to keep that historical perspective in mind. Sarah Light uh, of the Wharton School joining us here in studio. You're, uh, you're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. So in terms of some of the examples you give, you talk about Uber. And obviously, Uber, in terms of disruption, uh, really disrupted the traditional taxi industry. And it also, from a policy perspective, has been a very important point of contention between these two sides in a lot of cities. And it's really been at the city level, New York, here in Philadelphia, a lot of others, in terms of what the policy has been for the taxi industry for decade upon decade and what it may be now because of Uber coming on the scene. Absolutely. And it's really interesting. So depending upon your perspective as to whether Uber is good or bad, um, you're, you might call what they're doing regulatory entrepreneurship yeah. um, or regulatory arbitrage, right? So they, are take, they have in cities around the country taken the position, we're not the same as a taxi. Taxi right. laws don't apply to us. And um, they have lobbied very actively at the state level actually, to get uh, laws passed at the state level that would preempt local governments from being able to have their own regulatory rules. Um, So uh, in our schema in this this paper um, that I published with my co-authors, we come up with sort of four different types of policy disruption. And Uber is the classic example of what we call an end run. So an end run is the idea of a policy disruption where notwithstanding similarities to the incumbent industry, the innovative business argues that it shouldn't be or isn't subject to regulations governing the incumbent. So this is Uber saying we should not be subject to taxi rules. We shouldn't have to purchase medallions. We shouldn't be subject to supply caps. We shouldn't be subject to rate regulation. Our drivers shouldn't have to have fingerprinting and the same kind of criminal background checks. Et cetera, et cetera. So that has been Uber's position um, throughout the country, largely. So that's a very clear example of an end run. But that's not the only kind of policy disruption. There right. are other kinds. So a second type of policy disruption, which is uh, exemplified actually by Airbnb, is what we call an exemption. So an exemption is a case in which the new business here, Airbnb, actually fits into an explicit legal exception in the existing regulatory framework. But the challenge is that the way that the new business is scaling up is actually creating the same kind of policy problem that the original regulation was designed to to address. So here's the example with Airbnb. Um, 
there are fair housing laws in the United States, both with respect to home sales and with respect to home rentals, and then also with respect to hotels. So under the civil rights laws, you're not allowed to discriminate in renting out a hotel right. room. I right. could not say, Hilton Hotel, we are only rep- you know, renting out to women, or right. we will not rent out to people of a particular religion. That would be illegal. Right. There are, however, exceptions under these laws for owner-occupied residences. So if I choose to rent out my couch to a roommate because I need the money for rent, I am not obligated to um, rent to – Whoever. Uh, to anyone. I yeah. could choose whoever I want for whatever reason I want. I'm, as a woman, not required to rent to a man. I could choose that I want someone of my religion. Right. The, there is an express exemption. Why is there an exemption under these laws? Well, people's homes, they should have some more freedom, right? As right. a woman, maybe I have safety concerns about renting out my couch to someone. The problem, of course, is that when Airbnb um, – has scaled up so massively that they are renting out millions of rooms annually and are effectively competing with the hotel industry. Which are still owned by specific homeowners and not necessarily by Airbnb. Correct. That when you aggregate the individual decisions not to rent to people of a particular gender or of a particular race, it has the same impact um, as a a function of discrimination as – as if the exemption weren't, uh, you know, weren't there for the for the hotel industry. So that's what we call an exemption. And so this has obviously raised really serious issues. So there was a study that was published, I believe, about a year ago, um, finding that um, people who had African American sounding names were 16 percent less likely to have an Airbnb rental hmm. uh, made to them. Um, and this was in the American Economic Review. And um, so Airbnb hired the former attorney general of the United States, Eric Holder, to advise them on uh, anti-discrimination policies. Um, but this is this is the challenge, right? There's an exception. Yeah. There's an exception. And so that yeah. raises the question of should the exception be closed? There are right. two other uh, types of uh, policy disruption that you bring up. And if you can give examples of that, one is called a gap. And the other is called a solution. So what companies first fit into those two categories? Great. So the third category that we talk about is the gap. This is a situation in which there literally is no regulatory regime in place. The thing itself is so new that we kind of don't know what to do with it. Maybe there are kind of background judicial doctrines like contract law or property law or tort law that would deal with some of the the effects of this new form of business, but there's no regulatory regime. So a good example would be automobiles at the turn of the century, okay. right? We just didn't have, sure. you know, we yeah. just didn't have rules. That's right. Another example um, that has come up uh, in the Tesla context um, is that many states have laws that protect Uh, the franchise relationship. So when an auto manufacturer um, wants to sell its vehicles, it often does does so through a vehicle showroom that isn't owned by Ford or GM. It's owned by, you know, John Smith in New York. And um, for many, many years, that relationship was governed by ordinary contract law. The problem was that the Fords and the GMs, the auto manufacturers, had too much power over the the 
um, franchises with whom they contracted. Right. And so states <clears throat> created new laws that, that were designed to protect these franchises in that bargaining – sort of relationship of unequal bargaining power. So those are two examples. Right. Um, the final category of policy disruption is what we call a solution. And a solution – is where the innovative business solves a regulatory problem, but may be blocked by over-inclusive legal rules. So the example that we give is something like distributed solar generation. So distributed solar sure. generation, the idea that you, know, you could put solar panels on your roof, um, that's solving a problem. Right? You're, you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions, so that's a good thing. Yep. The problem is that um, many states have – rules that say that if you want to connect to the electric power grid, you need to apply for a permit through the State Public Utility Commission because the assumption behind the regulatory system is that anyone who wants to connect to the grid is an investor-owned utility like a large coal or natural gas-fired power plant. It's right. not Dan Loney. Right. And so imagine a situation where the existing legal rules would say, oh, you want to connect to the power grid with your solar panels? You need to file an application with the State Public Utility Commission, which is expensive and time-consuming. Right. How likely are you to put the solar panels on your yeah. roof? Probably yeah. not so likely, right? So the over-inclusive existing legal regime might block what it is that you want to do. And you have this solution out there that uh, could potentially solve regulatory problems. So those are the four types, the end run, the exemption, the gap, and the solution. So where does autonomous vehicles fit into this? Because obviously a lot of people are talking about it. It's right. it's obviously it's a technology that is coming along. It's still in development. It's still going to take a while. But again, it's it is a technology that if it is going to be approved, it's going to be approved because it meets certain standards of the Federal Highway Administration uh, and, and all of the laws that, that they have. Absolutely. So autonomous vehicles are really interesting. Um, so it, it's important to understand the background of how vehicles like ordinary cars with drivers are regulated in the United States. Um, in 19... 66, the Congress passed the motor vehicle, uh, like the basically the motor vehicle safety law, which is the primary statute that governs vehicle safety in the United States. Yeah. It basically says the federal government is responsible through the Department of Transportation for regulating motor vehicles. That's the term of art and motor vehicle equipment. Right. So that's what they get to regulate. The states get to regulate everything else, meaning the driver. So when you get your driver's license, you go to the state of Pennsylvania. When you get insurance, that is governed by state rules. Um, traffic laws, state, sometimes local. Um, and so that's the division of labor. There's the car on the one side and the driver on the other. Autonomous vehicles raise this really interesting policy disruption question of are they the car or are they the driver? Right. Right? Yeah. And so they're clearly creating a policy disruption. Um, whether you think that they are a good thing or a bad thing um, is basically sort of the question. That whether you think that the existing legal rules are under-inclusive or over-inclusive, that determines whether they fall into the end run, right? They're trying to get around existing rules yeah. versus they're a solution they could potentially save many, many lives by avoiding the problem of distracted driving, um, and they're potentially blocked by over-inclusive legal rules. So they could potentially fit into either of these two categories. But 
what uh, is happening right now is that Congress is attempting to write new legal rules. So the House has passed a bill. Um, and the Senate has been debating a bill, although it has not yet passed out of the Senate. Um, but it's quite similar to the House bill, which would basically say autonomous vehicles are vehicles mm-hmm. and the federal government gets to regulate them, not the states. The challenge with this proposed uh, – these these two proposed bills are, in my view, that they are insufficiently protective of consumer safety because the laws themselves don't actually write safety rules. They don't say in the statute itself, this is how quickly an autonomous vehicle must be able to stop right. or something like that, right? That get, Those rules get written by the Department of Transportation. Right. But there are no such rules yet for autonomous vehicles. And so the laws would essentially say the federal government gets to regulate and the states can't regulate. Oh, by the way, the federal government hasn't actually written any regulations right. yet. So yeah. from my perspective, it seems like the states should be allowed to step in and write their own rules until sure. the federal government has some uniform standard. That that strikes me as more protective of safety. Well, th- then uh, playing off of that then, and not necessarily with, uh, w- with autonomous, uh, but what then becomes the – I mean the role of regulators is to regulate – but but with all of this kind of uncertainty, especially using the example of autonomous vehicles, how do they proceed now to a degree, going back to something we said before, how do you proceed now to be there and ready to go when autonomous vehicles get approvals, we see them on the roads full time, it's legal, instead of having it be a retroactive thing three or four years after the fact? Great question. So one of the things that's happening is that there's actually a lot of dialogue going on uh, between auto manufacturers and regulators about what the best standards ought to be. There is actually uh, an industry organization called the Society of Automotive Engineers, SAE, Mm -hmm. which sets kind of best practices standards. So if you are trying to determine what's the difference between, you know, um, parallel parking assist versus Tesla autopilot versus the Waymo car that a child could be the quote unquote driver of, um, there are different levels of automation that have been defined by the Society of Automotive Engineers. Um, And the current state of play is that – I think more than 20 states have written laws that allow autonomous vehicles on the roads. Um, in some cases, actually in most cases, a human driver must be present and yeah. monitoring the vehicle. A couple of states have said a human driver need not be physically present in the vehicle. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a little bit of sort of a difference of opinion among the states, but they're you know they're on the roads. The federal government has taken a somewhat advisory uh, role yeah. up to now, basically yeah. saying here's what we think a model state law ought to look like. We believe that autonomous vehicle manufacturers should complete this multi point safety assessment, but nothing is mandatory at the federal level yet. How how do you also deal with the issue? Going back to Uber for a second, the fact that Uber considers themselves a technology company and not an automaker, which, again, 
different set of rules for, for you know, each one of those. Absolutely. Right. So, well, Uber isn't an automaker, right? The, the, yeah. right. right. The, but you mean, <laughs> I, I totally understand your yeah. point, right? They're saying, look, we're not a taxi service. We're an information technology company. We right. simply provide the software that matches people with right. rides in, in available cars. With vehicles as with, kind of the, 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 the process. Exactly. Yeah. So that's been their argument. That argument has not been super successful. Um, the, you know, at a certain point, I think that they had to concede that they are going to be subject to some kind of regulation. And so that's why they lobbied for laws at the state level so that they wouldn't have to go to individual municipalities where often, frankly, the, um, the interest group pressure in favor of taxis is stronger at the local level. They don't want to have to change rules if they go from, you know, Philadelphia into Montgomery County. Um, but they concede that they're, required to provide insurance for their drivers. Um, they uh, have been willing to put their drivers through certain kinds of background checks, although not fingerprinting, right? That was sure. a big issue in the city of Austin, where ultimately Uber pulled out when the city of Austin insisted that the drivers be fingerprinted. Right. So there, there are slightly different rules for taxis. A new um, a new identity called a transportation network company right. is what they are called under most of these laws. Sarah Light joining us uh, from the Wharton School. Uh, she is part of a uh, Penn Wharton public policy initiative presentation looking at regulation and how uh, disruptive uh, innovation is playing a role in terms of regulation moving forward. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Now, you also talk about uh, these policy responses that are seemingly out there uh, to block a free pass, which uh, a lot of companies would always love to have a free pass, old regulation and new regulation. So how do they play in with the four uh, that you were mentioning before? Right. Absolutely. So uh, law professors like to have two by two matrices to yes. describe all things. Yes. Um, so uh, which you have done a great job. I of. love my matrices. They're great. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so just in the same way that we uh, categorize the types of policy disruption is sort of falling into four different buckets. Um, We argue that there are four primary policy responses. So a regulator can choose when confronted with some kind of innovative business that's creating a policy disruption to block. Basically, you are not allowed to enter this market. So the example there would be if the city of Philadelphia, as it did several years ago, actually impounded vehicles that were being used for Uber rides. Um, The second example, uh, second type, would be a free pass. So a free pass basically says, we're going to let you in. We're not going to regulate you at all. This is what, as you rightly pointed out, a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm sure, would love, right? Um, And that was ultimately... Uh, initially Uber's argument, right, which is we we shouldn't be subject to regulation and, and at all. It's, and it's still the case with, with many innovators, and, and that's where I think some of them are a little concerned about what seems to be a shift of mindset where regulators are getting more involved in a lot of these aspects. Absolutely. So the third type is old reg, or we call it old reg. The, the idea that even if the existing legal rules are an imperfect fit, you do your best to apply them to the new form of business. So this would be, rather than crafting a new set of legal rules for Uber or Lyft or Airbnb, you say, you know what, they're close to a taxi. We're going to make them follow the taxi rules. And then finally, new reg um, is the idea that you actually have to write 
new legal rules. Right. So this would be the example of states over the past several years, each of which has passed a law that governs what they call transportation network companies. They create a new legal category for Uber, Lyft, and and its ilk, um, or their ilk, uh, and they create different legal rules for the new form of business, or they scrap the old legal regime for taxis too, and they say sure. everybody is going to be regulated as a transportation network company. It doesn't matter if you're organized as a taxi fleet or if you're organized as Uber and Lyft. All the drivers need to do X. All the vehicles need to have you know this amount of insurance. So those are some options with the new reg. Now, one of the areas which also you, you talk about, and seemingly as all these technologies develop, we will probably see this even more so, is the fact that you will have a a technology, an innovation of some kind that may very well cross over into a couple of different regulators' territories. And so the question becomes, okay, who's the, the, the regulation, who's the regulator that's responsible for this? Or is it a combination of, of two or three agencies? Absolutely. So this has been a really important issue um, particularly in the sharing economy context, but also now in the autonomous vehicle context. In the sharing economy context, it's been really important because a lot of the existing businesses like hotels and taxis, they're subject to local regulation. But um, now we have – and then there are you know local land use laws that say you as a homeowner aren't allowed to rent out your you know apartment for, for more than X days a month or something like right. that. Um, but these firms don't want to have to deal with a patchwork of different local rules on uh, primarily. Um, and secondarily, they're national firms, right? So they want to, in some cases, be subject to national standards, right? right? Um, but yes, so this, just in the same way that uh, that there can be a policy disruption, there can also be what I've called a federalism disruption. And I think the best and most clear example of that is in the autonomous vehicle context where I – uh, mentioned earlier that the current law says the federal government regulates the vehicle and the equipment, whereas states regulate the driver. But it's right. not clear, is an autonomous vehicle the vehicle or is it the driver, right? Yeah. And the federal government says it's the vehicle. But there's, I think, a fair argument that at least the software is the driver, right? Computer programmers are perfectly capable of programming different speed limits for different states, right? right? So why shouldn't they be programming different ethics for different states or different behavior for different states? Well, and one of the things you bring up also is not only just the, the regulations or the laws is, uh, and you bring up the, the specific case, is that in terms of autonomous vehicles, the conditions of driving in the wintertime in Maine are certainly a lot different than driving in Arizona. Now you may have bad weather as the as the X factor, but certainly the conditions in Maine with snow and cold are going to be significantly different than being in the warmth of Arizona in January or February. And how do you adjust regulation to fit that as well. Absolutely. Right. So there are certainly different conditions. Um, and to a certain extent, this goes to a number of different questions about how the technology is going to develop as right. much as it's a regulatory question. Right. So there's often a kind of uh, what David Mindell at MIT has called a myth of linear progress, right? The assumption is we are moving from human-powered or human-driven cars directly to driverless cars with no steering wheels and yeah. no brakes. Yeah. And that's the that's the position that Google took and that now Google's successor Waymo has taken, which is we can't trust humans to 
refocus their attention after they've been, you know, watching a movie on their iPad if the car beeps at them to tell them that there's some emergency sure. that they need to pay attention to. Yeah. And that's not crazy, right? I mean, yeah. that's totally reasonable. Um, on the other hand, there are some car manufacturers. I think uh, Toyota has really exemplified this model, which uh, the vision that they have in mind is more like very enhanced driver assist capacity. So there's still a person, they're still driving, you know, uh, uh, there's still a steering wheel, there's still brakes, but the vehicle is programmed in a way that enhances the human capacity, right? One one quick final question then. Then in terms of the policy side, where do you think we're going to head? Are are we going to head more towards the federal, more towards the state, or a combination of the two? Um, um, with respect to autonomous vehicles, well, just definitely the, federal. Okay, definitely that is, I think, very clear okay. that you know the House has already passed this bill. The Senate is considering its similar bill after the very well publicized Uber autonomous vehicle crash yeah. in Arizona. Yeah. People kind of stopped and took a pause, um, but I fully expect that uh, that they will ultimately be regulated at the federal level. The question is, before the Department of Transportation actually writes new regulations, whether the states will be allowed to continue with their regime sort of in that interim period. And with certain things like uh, like Uber and Airbnb, it will be more on the local or the state level. Correct. And again, it's going to be probably a case by case basis. Correct. Yeah. Great seeing you, Sarah. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Sarah Light from the Wharton School joining us here in studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.